So we are starting um, a new sermon series, <clears throat> and we're calling this sermon series Undivided. And so over the course of the next few Sundays, we're going to be looking at various places in um, our culture, in the world in general, where people, um, and especially the body, has been divided. And so, you know, on Wednesday, we had Ash Wednesday, and we started this season of Lent. And if you were there, if you remember what this season is about, it's a time of reflecting on who we are, reflecting on our sinfulness, um, and preparing our hearts for Easter, right? Preparing our hearts for the, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we prepare and as we reflect, we don't have to do it in a hopeless way, right? So God might be bringing up things for you and, and allowing you to see your sinfulness and your ugliness, but we do that on this side of the cross. So we know that we have grace, right, that God is with us. But he'll be showing us some things. And it is because of this season and because of this um, sort of posture of reflection and repentance that we wanted to do this kind of sermon series where we look at our corporate sinfulness and the ways that that has affected us and broken us as a body. So this morning, um, I'm going to start us off by talking about the division between men and women. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 2. And uh, we're actually going to read together out loud verses 23 through 29. So if you're able, I invite you to go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's word. So beginning with verse 23, it reads, Before the coming of this day, we were held in custody under the law. This is the word of God. Amen. So you can go ahead and have your seats. So we'll go ahead and get right into this passage. Um, The first thing that you need to know about um, Paul's words here, and especially his words starting in verse 28, um, is that this is a very pointed statement. The, 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 The divisions that he is choosing to talk about were not random kind of loosey goosey things. So In other words, this is not the kind of statement that you sometimes hear people make when an issue of race comes up. Where, like, I love all people red, brown, purple, green, turquoise, right? Like, that's it's not that kind of a thing. He's not just randomly throwing things out into the air. Um, This is a pointed passage, but it's a familiar text. And so, the familiarity of this passage combined with our general, yeah, I know, I know. Whenever it comes to things like, I don't know, gender issues or race issues, we tend to think, no, no, we get it. Yeah, we're one. We got it. I got it. When you combine those things together, we, we sometimes read it as if Paul is saying, I love purple people too. That's not what's happening here. That's not what Paul is doing. He is making a very pointed 
a very intentional statement. See, we shouldn't hear Paul's words that way, and the first people who heard Paul's words absolutely would not have heard it that way. At the start of verse 26, the the way that it would have read in Greek is just all. So ours has four, some several words before, but the way it reads in Greek is just all children are children of God by faith. All are children of God by faith. All. Everyone. This would have been jarring to the first hearers of this letter. And see, to understand why, we have to understand a little bit about why Paul is writing this, what was going on in Galatia. So at the time of this letter, there were um, some battles happening, and they were going on all over um, in the early church. But particularly in, in Galatia, there was an issue about what is required for salvation. So this is an issue that Paul addresses many, many times. It was a big issue. Paul was saying, and and what we know to be true, is that Christ and Christ alone is what we need for salvation. But there was another group at this time, a group called the Judaizers. So this was a group of Jewish converts to Christianity who believed that Christ, essentially what they believed was that Christ wasn't enough. Yes, you needed to believe in Christ, but you also needed to adhere to the law. Christ and the law. And like us, you know, just how we like to pick and choose which parts of God's word we most resonate with and like, they did too. So by the law, what they really, really got hung up on was circumcision, right? Circumcision and and dietary restrictions to maybe a lesser degree. But Paul is saying, I know Christ and Christ alone. So when Paul says all are one in Christ, that word all flew directly in the face of what the Judaizers were saying. No, all aren't one. All who f- believe in Christ and are also following the law, sure. But those, those folk who are over there and haven't been circumcised, no, they're not one with us. They're not a part of this church. He was being very pointed. And this is the, con- the context under which we have to understand Paul's words, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And it's in the context of speaking against the law and saying Christ and Christ alone that we also have to understand what Paul is saying about women and slaves. The law, if you can remember or if you have ever heard before, it was sort of a total thing. It encompassed and touched every part of a person's life. And so when Paul says Christ and Christ alone, we are no longer under the law. We are no longer in need of a guardian because Christ has come That was a big and bold statement. Christ and Christ alone. In Christ, all are one. So in this context, Paul's words here in Galatia, um, in this letter, give three mandates. There is a cultural mandate. That whole issue of there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There's a social mandate. There is neither slave nor free. And there's a sexual mandate. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Nor is there male and female. So as cliched as this verse has come to sound to many of us, Paul's statement about male and female were equally as pointed um, and would have been received in, in the same kind of jarring way. Again, keep in mind that the backdrop of this conversation are these statements about 
the law. It's confusion and disagreement about the place of the law. And Paul is saying that we have a new thing going on. We are no longer under the law. So what about these relationships is important? It will probably be no surprise to you for me to tell you that in this time, women were not seen as equal to men, right? That's not surprising. We've, we've heard that. Women were not allowed to be taught the law. Women were not considered to be um, credible witnesses in a court of law and could not be witnesses. Women were separated oftentimes in synagogues. They were seen as, we were seen as second-class citizens, not at all equal um, to men. And you can see this very clearly. There's um, a well-known first century blessing that would have been prayed by Jewish men daily, um, by some Jewish men daily. Uh, and it went like this. Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me a slave. Blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Now, this tells us something very important about the air that people breathe during this time, about the culture of the day. This prayer doesn't just sort of point to exclusion and marginalization, but like disdain for those on the margins. Thank you, Jesus, for not making me them. Thank you. And think about the people who are praying this prayer. So as this relates to gender, almost 100% of the men who would have prayed this prayer were like connected to women in very significant ways. These would have been fathers and husbands, brothers. These were religious leaders. These were people who were very connected to women. Can you imagine getting up in the morning after having laid next to your wife all night long and then going into your prayer closet and being, thank you, God, for not making me a woman? Or kissing your daughter <laughs> and then going into your prayer closet and saying, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. Can you imagine being a little girl and walking by and hearing daddy praying that prayer? Like, that sucks. (laughs) That's hard to imagine. Well, maybe if we think hard enough, it's not that hard. Thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman. This was a well-known prayer. And in fact, Paul may have prayed this prayer at one point in time in his life. If he didn't, he definitely had heard it. And so when he says the words that he is saying, he is speaking to that kind of attitude. He is challenging that. Now, some of you may be sitting here and saying, well, Paul says some other things about women. I don't, I don't know if maybe this is where we want to go. Paul was certainly not perfect. And there are things that Paul said that, hey, we have to wrestle with. But how many people know that this is the word of God? And how many people know that God (laughs) managed to, from Genesis to Revelation, speak truths through people, have people say things that they would otherwise not have said, things that make you go, hmm, how how did that get in there? See, that to me lets me know that God is faithful and that there is a Holy Spirit because I know that Paul likely was not the most feminist of men at this time. Amen? And yet he is challenging that sentiment. He is speaking directly to that. Think about this as well. If you are a free male and you are praying this prayer, then what that means is that on some level, on some level, you recognize the inequality faced by women in your culture. 
on some level said in the inverse, you recognize the privilege that you have because you are a man. But instead of wanting to challenge that, instead of seeing that as something that is wrong, they, like many of us, accept it blindly, gladly. Why? Probably for the same reasons that we accept many of the injustices that we see in our day, blindly or without much complaint. See, you believe, he believed, we believe that the way things are are kind of the way they ought to be. And worse, the way things are are maybe the way God intended them to be. The low status of women and anyone who was not the right kind of man was not just seen as okay, but it was seen as God-ordained, intended. After all, it was Eve who deceived Adam. It was Eve who was tricked by the serpent. I mean, it makes sense that women should be under men, right? They're just sort of faulty. Good, good hearted, well meaning, great at nurturing children and keeping houses clean, but not, 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 not equal to men. There's nothing wrong with the culture. There's nothing wrong with our structures. There's no injustice. It's just that women are, you know, a little defective by nature. It's okay. That's fine. But, you know. The way things are are the way they are supposed to be. The way things are are, in fact, the way God created them to be. So Paul's words here speak directly to a thing that we do, something we have, we have a tendency to do this. God comes to us through culture, right? God speaks to us through culture. The Bible is the word of God, but it doesn't contain God. It's an effort of God to speak and reveal himself to us. Jesus came to us as a Jewish man born at a specific cultural and historical moment. Very few of us would argue that God is Jewish. I mean, I've never heard anyone make the argument, well, because Jesus came as as he was Jewish, that means God is Jewish. No, it, it means that God is always revealing himself to us through our culture. And so, of course, when he came, he came embodied in a specific person at a specific time. Does that make sense? But this is something that we do. We read onto the word our own cultural beliefs. We allow what we see around us to be the thing that determines how we ought to understand who God is. It's what we do. It's why we need the Holy Spirit. We can't help but do it, right? So I'm going to give you an example of what this looks like. Um, And I'm going to just give you a little warning up front. So what I'm going to tell you now is something that every seminarian has learned and very few have ever said from a pulpit. And there's a reason we've never said it, and that's because we don't really know how, because it freaks people out. It freaks most of us out when we first learn it. So you might get freaked out if you've never heard this before. It's okay. I promise it's okay. Just listen through the whole thing. I want to give an example of how we read onto Scripture our own culture. And this is going to be where we spend a lot of time this morning because there's some powerful truths in this. So how many of you have ever heard that there are two creation stories? Yep, that's about what I thought. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. so there are two creation stories. If you read through the book of Genesis, if you've ever read through 1 and chapter 2, the way we read that is though it's like one continuous story. 
And we read that because we've been taught to read it that way. I'm almost, if you have a Bible, t- like lift it up and op- open it up or do whatever. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1, the, the, the end of chapter 1. I am almost positive that if you have a, a Bible with you, that there is some header between Genesis, um, the end of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, or the, excuse me, Genesis 2, 2 and Genesis 2, 4. Does everybody have some kind of a header that says, maybe it'll say, now the story of Adam and Eve, or something about Adam and Eve? Mm-hmm. So that didn't exist when these were written, right? Like, no one went in and put little chapter headings. Like, this is, this is something that we do to help stories flow. And a lot of times it's really helpful, but sometimes it's not so helpful. Because when we read that, we think, oh, this, isn't a crea- this is now telling us about Adam and Eve. But if you read that, Genesis 2-4 starts a whole other story about how creation happens. We learn about God planting fields and, and the waters, and we learn, we get a very clear statement about Adam and Eve and how humanity was created. We hear this story told to us in Genesis 1. If you read it, you'll see that they are two different stories. Now, if you ever decide to study biblical criticism, and I don't know that I recommend that you do. I don't. But if you ever decide to study that, what you will learn is that this story, the, the, the creation narratives, are they come from two different sources. And those sources were sort of redacted together and made to, to read as one story. And each of the people who were writing, each of the sources are emphasizing something different about God. They want you to see something different in the story. If you, and I want everybody to do it tonight because I know y'all are like, What? Do it tonight. Go through, read both of them. One reads like a poem, right? Genesis 1 is very sort of, to us in English, it sounds very cut and dry. It's like day one happens, day two happens, day three happens, and this is what God did. And it looks like a poem the way that it's written in our Bibles. This was, in Hebrew, you know, this would have read like a poem. It is poetry. The creation story in chapter 2 is prose. It's a story. And it reads that way, right? We get this wonderful story. Now, Repeat after me because I just want us to pause for a moment. The Bible contains the word of God. It does not contain God. All right. So God always comes to us through culture. And our language, our culture is not big enough, right, to hold who God is. God is constantly revealing himself to us, but it can't hold all of who God is. So just hold that in your minds. So God comes to us through culture. This is two different accounts of creation, and they are intended to tell us two interesting things, two different things, two similar things, two overlapping things about who God is and about who we are in relationship to God and who we are in relationship to each other. I'm almost 100% certain that if someone were to ask you to tell the story of creation, you would go into the second one. That's the one we're most familiar with. If someone were to ask you how God created humanity, you would probably start telling them the second story. Well, first God created Adam, and God breathed life into Adam, and then God gave Adam a job, you know, name all the animals. And then Adam was lonely, so God said, oh, that's not good for, for man to be alone. And so God created Eve. He took a rib out of Adam's side and made a woman. And then Adam looked at this woman and said, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? That's the story we are familiar with. So here's what we do. 
On one hand, that story is most familiar to us because it's written as a story. It's familiar. It sounds like something that you can tell your kids and you can hold on to. It's a story. It's not as dry as the first one. But there's another reason why that's the most popular one, in, in my opinion. That one lends itself more readily to our cultural understanding of men and women. Yes, God created Adam in the image of God. And then, you know, God created woman from Adam. And Adam was doing some work. He was given a calling and he was given a vocation and he needed help. So then God gave him a helper. Ain't God good? We are helpers. Like that fits into the cultural narrative that we are familiar with. It, it resonates with how we understand men and women and what men do and what women do and what men ought to do and what women ought to do, right? It, it resonates. And so we, we get that one and we say, yep, mm-hmm, right there. That's the word. That's the word. It resonates. But that's the second telling of the story. In the first telling of the story, we see that both male and female were created. And then God said, let us make for ourselves humanity. And so they created them. Male and female, they created them. In the image of God, they created them. And God said to man, to humanity, to male and female, here, be fruitful and multiply and take ownership, stewardship over all of creation. I give it to you. That's the first story. There is no separate account of first man and then woman. They created them. So here's the powerful thing. Okay, so let me tell you. People lose their minds when they, I remember sitting in my Old Testament class first semester and people sat there like, what? I came here to be a preacher and you are about to make me not be a Christian. <laughs> the, you, are you telling me that the Bible, what? The, if there are two different creation stories, then maybe everything I believe about the Bible is wrong. No. So if, if you feel that way, just Breathe. <laughs> We can remember the words of, of Paul in 1 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for instruction and for correction, for teaching. All of it is God-breathed, all of it. See, when I heard this, I didn't, I didn't freak out. To me, this is like God is so good. Look how good he is. Because when you see these two stories in relationship to each other, if it's not one, if we don't you know, okay, well, this is the one that sounds the best. When you look at them together, you can't walk away from it believing that, well, you know, woman is a second-class citizen because God ordained it to be so. You can't possibly do that because Genesis 1 is a corrective to that sort of cultural reading of Genesis 2. I want to read it to you just very clearly, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, so that you can hear it and maybe hear it with fresh ears. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God blessed them. God created them. 
God gave them a vocation. God gave them a calling. Male and female, he created them. This reads a little bit differently, doesn't it? See, if we read these two things together, we see a powerful truth about the oneness that we have in Christ. We see a powerful truth about what Paul is saying in Galatians when he says that there is neither male nor female. We often want to understand these stories as sort of historical, scientific accounts of creation. That is not what they were written to be. And to prove it, you only need to look at the story of Cain and Abel. Because we overlook these things so many times. So what is, how does the story go? There's, there should be four people on earth. Adam and Eve, they have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. How many people does that leave on earth? You can answer. Three, because four minus one is three. And then the Bible tells us that Cain goes out, because God is not happy with that, and Cain, God says, you got to go. I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to let anybody kill you, anybody. Who? who? I'm not going to let anybody kill you, but you, you have to go. And then the text tells us that Cain went away, and what did he do? He found a wife. So either the writer of this story, if, if the writer of this story is a historian, they're a terrible historian because they left out like a huge chunk. Like where did the other people come from? You can't be a historian and leave. That's important. That's an important detail, right? So either they are a terrible historian and a terrible writer, and centr- like generations and generations of people have just missed that completely. So they, right? Because that's something you'd be like, oh, let's edit that. That didn't make good sense. Or this story is supposed to do something else. This is not a scientific historical account of creation. It's supposed to tell us something about who God is and who we are in relationship to God. So if we understand that and we read these two passages together, then maybe instead of seeing Eve coming from the rib of Adam as being, you know, evidence that that man was created in the image of God and what woman was created from a man, or maybe we see it instead as being a powerful narrative about what oneness looks like. So much so that humanity, mankind was so one that they were like one flesh. Maybe this is a foreshadowing to what Jesus is talking about when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't that have a lot more weight? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. See, because in me, you are one. There is no division. And so I came to restore that oneness when you all were as if one flesh. Love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe this is how we ought to understand what Paul is saying when he says to husbands, love your wives as yourselves. He's pointing back to that time in creation when we were so united that it was as if we were one flesh. See, when we read Genesis 2, the second creation story, in light of the first one, then when it gets to the part where it says that God created for Adam a helper, we might want to say, well, what does that mean? What does helper mean? Instead of seeing it as like, you know, a divinely appointed assistant, maybe we want to ask, well, what, 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 what's behind that word? And if you were to do that, you would find that the Hebrew word that we have now translated as helper, the King James is my favorite, help meet. Like what? Let me tell you why I love that. I'm going to tell you right now why I love that. 
Because my whole life, I, you know, I didn't grow up a Christian. So when I heard people talk about that passage, people would just say, a helpmate. How many helpmate? Have you heard that before? Helpmate. They said that because helpmate doesn't make good sense, right? You just think that was just improper English. <laughs> like, they must mean helpmate. And I remember reading it for the first time in my little King James Bible, and I said, helpmate? What is a helpmate? And thank God that I did, because when I looked it up, I found the, a powerful truth about what that is. There were two words that have come to be combined that were translated as helper. One meant protector, strong, savior even. And another referred to somebody's strength. So you put them together and it was translated as helper, but it always had the connotation of strong protector, strong saver even, which makes sense if you think about how the story goes because God says it's not good. The state that this man is in is not good, so I'm going to send someone. God is always sending someone. Amen? God is always coming. It's a very different, this is what a divinely appointed assistant, she wasn't his maid, she wasn't someone who was like, well, you know what, I'm going to pray that God gives me a good husband, because then I'll have direction for my life. I will. No, she was strong. She was sent as an equal. You can't see it as a maid or a cleaning lady. You can't see it that way when we look at it through the lens of Genesis 1 because we know that male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them, and he gave them both a calling and a vocation, a purpose and a mission. There was oneness. See, God is good. I guarantee you that, oh, I mean, we know this. We know when we look at our culture, this is not how we understand ourselves even. Probably none of you would say, oh, no, you know, the division between male and female, that's over. Maybe nobody in this room would say that. There are people who believe that we live in a post-racial, post-gender, post-everything world. Like, this is America, and we are all just equal And if you work hard, baby, you can have it too, right? Like, that's still, like, that's our narrative. I want to go back for a moment to that prayer. See, for some of us, it it might be hard to imagine a situation in which a, a man would pray and thank God for not having made him a woman. But I think if we think about it hard enough, it might not be so hard to imagine. What does that look like in our culture today? We live in America. We live, just let's talk about our own country, because we're not going to even go into the world. In our own country, in the United States of America, women, one in five women will be raped in their lifetime. In our post-gender society, one in 71 men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. In our our post-gender, we are just doing our things kind of a world. We live in a world where 49, in in a survey, a 2013 survey, 49%, excuse me, 43.9% of women reported having been sexually assaulted at that point in time in their life. Like, that's almost half. That's, That's the world that we live in. I often watch commercials, and I wonder, like, if many years from now, if there's, like, some alien anthropologist that's trying to understand, like, who we were and what our gender relationships were based just on commercials, what they would think of us. This this is the the division in our world. 
So if, if someone hundreds of years from now were to try to get a picture of who we were based on our commercials, they could only conclude that men are either completely inept, just unable to do simple things like wipe up a spill on a counter, or that they are like these hard, emotionally distant and cut off, maybe successful, macho, hypersexual kind of men. Women, regardless of who they are, are just either very, very content to be like sexual objects all the time, constantly. Like you could be the CEO, but you are a sexy CEO. Like that, right? Like this is what our, this is what we see all over the place. It doesn't matter what. The, 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 the preferred sexual object of any heterosexual man is a prepubescent child. Like that's the only thing you could take away from our culture. Like this is what we seem to, to like. There are 50-year-old women trying to look like, like, right? It would be ridiculous for me to try to look 15 because I'm that's stupid. But every image that we see, all of our mo- supermodels are typically teenage girls. But that's the image of what womanhood looks like. Right? Like we have such a bizarre culture. So maybe no one is praying, thank God you didn't make me a woman. Maybe. I don't know that that's true. People still ask me if we're going to have other children, not because we have two and they think we should have three, but because we have two girls and they think, surely you want a boy. I have a sister who has two boys. No one has ever asked her, when are you having another one? Because surely you want a girl. That's in this country. So maybe, maybe nobody's praying, thank you for not making me a woman, but I think we can all agree that there are some divisions. One of the most awkward things to look at is a group of single Christian men and women try to interact with each other. It's, it's, it's almost painfully awkward. I, mean, I remember being an undergrad, and again, I didn't grow up in a Christian community, so I wasn't, I just, you know, we just, it, wasn't that de- it just wasn't that hard. <laughs> And I remember hugging somebody, and it was like, oh, okay, I'm so, I, clearly, clearly, something about, you can't hug me, okay, I'll just, I'll just put my shoulder on your, on your rib, and, okay. It's awkward. We don't know how to relate to one another. We don't know how to interact with one another, because everything in our culture says there's only two ways to interact. Like, we either sexualize each other, or we, we objectify each other, or we're violent toward each other. We don't know how to interact. There is division. And yet, so when Paul speaks to this Galatian church, regardless of whether or not you've ever heard anybody pray a prayer like that, we know he is absolutely speaking to us. He is absolutely speaking to the air that we breathe, the culture of our day. And what he says is that in Christ, there is neither male nor female. So what does this look like practically? Let me start by saying this. This is a powerful truth of who we are. This is true. It is so. But we live in an in-between space. Pastor David talks about this a lot. We live in that moment in between. This is true, but it's not yet reflected in the world that we live in, right? So we're waiting for that truth to be manifest. It's true, but we're not yet walking into it. And so what does that mean for you and I practically? So saying that in Christ there is not male or female, does not, that's not an answer to injustice. That is no more an answer to injustice than saying I love purple people. 
right? Like, it means nothing. And if we say it like that, if we say it without any action, if we say it like that without any conscience of where we are and what is going on around us and the injustice that is real and that hurts people and that has broken our church and that is constantly contributing to us wounding one another and being wounded, if we just throw out at that, well, in Jesus Christ, we are one, then we are making Paul's words very trite. And we are sucking the power out of the truth that in Christ we are one. See, that's not something that is an answer in and of itself. That is hope for those of us who are in the fight. That is hope so that when we sit and we watch our TVs and we listen to our statistics and we can't figure out how to relate to one another, it's hope that in Christ we are one. We don't have to give up because the battle has, in fact, been won. It's hope, but it is not by itself an answer or a solution. So what does it look like to be a solution? It means that we should be always asking God to open our eyes so that we can see the air around us. So that we don't become people who just sort of accept things the way they are and maybe even become people who say, hey, maybe this is the way God intended it to be. It means that we are always yielded and surrendered to the Holy Spirit so that God can convict us and reveal to us those places in our own lives where we are broken and need healing around this issue. It means that we speak for one another. I love that Paul is saying this. Paul is exactly the kind of man who would have prayed that prayer if he didn't pray it himself at one point in time in his life. And he's speaking to people who hold attitudes that he likely had and might have still been holding on to at the moment that he was speaking. That's an example of what it means for us. It means that we advocate. It means men in this congregation that you do not sit by and and, and be okay with the objectification of women. You can't be okay with it. And women, we ought to get a little irritated when we see commercials with men who act like they can't clean up a spill. I promise you, promise you. I cannot, I'm like, if I see another commercial where some woman comes into a door and somebody's made a colossal mess and she smiles, I've got bounty. Like, he can't get bounty? Like, what? I just, I can't. It should incense you. It should incense you. And not just because it's playing into our traditional gender roles that sort of are oppressive to us, but we ought to be mindful of ways that it's oppressive to our men. I would, it would, To be a Christian man, I would never want to ever get married if my vision for marriage was going to be that I would go from being a single, independent person who can think and make sound decisions to someone who has to immediately take care of a grown person. Because this grown person won't be able to think for herself. She won't be able to make decisions for herself. She won't have any kind of calling or vocation. That'll all be on me. Like, that's that's a lot of weight. That's a lot of pressure, right? It's oppressive for both of us. And so what it means is that we're constantly asking God to show us those places, show us the brokenness, and show us what to do and how to act, how to walk in the truth that in Christ we are one, because in Christ we actually are one. We actually are one. In Christ, those divisions are torn down. And so you and I, as children of God, you and I, as members of the body of Christ, get to daily live lives where we are ushering in that truth. Where we say, I will not 
keep quiet. I will not be silent. I will pray. I will fast. I will work. I will do. I will go. I will be what God calls me to be because I will not sit and be quiet. In Christ, we are one. That is hope to those of us in the battle. It is not in and of itself something you can say as a solution. We are constantly being called to usher in the kingdom of God. So my prayer for us, new community, as we are um, moving throughout this sermon series, and we'll be looking at lots of different divisions. We're going to look at divisions between young and old. We'll look at divisions between rich and poor. We're going to be talking about a lot of different ways that we have been divided in the body of Christ. And so it's my prayer that this will be another one of those sermon series where we ask God to help us hear in fresh ways and maybe see familiar passages in new ways. Because this is especially for people in a church like that. We know this, right? Like you're all here because we believe that there's supposed to be oneness. We're fighting for justice. And so sometimes it's easy to start looking outward and not being able to see, well, how do I contribute to it? What are the places where my life is, is sort of saying, yep, mm-hmm, I'm living into the brokenness and not living into the truth of God's oneness? So my prayer is that we will um, be yielded to the Holy Spirit and allow God to show us those things. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you that you sent your son into this world. I thank you that you saw our brokenness, that you saw our division, and you said, no. I thank you that you have provided hope in Christ, that you have provided healing in Christ, that you have provided reconciliation to each other and to you in Christ. Holy Spirit, we desire to live in that. We desire to usher that in, but I pray that you would help us to see all of the ways, all of the places where we are sometimes complacent, all of the times when we live into the brokenness instead of living into the powerful truth that we are one. Help us to see all of the places where we have accepted the lie instead of pressing into the truth of God. I pray that none of us would grow weary in doing good. I pray that none of us would take on this thing and think that we are now supposed to go and make it happen. Help us to know how to rest and to live and to trust you, God. It is the desire of your heart. The unity that we experience in Christ is because You decided it would be so. And it is through the power, your power, the power of Jesus Christ, that it is and will be so. Help us to rest in that and find peace in that. As we go into the places that you call us to go, as we say the things you call us to do, as we fall on our faces and repent, when you reveal to us our own brokenness and our own sinfulness, help us to rest and find peace in the truth that this is your will. This is the desire of your heart. And so we know that it is yes and amen. God, you are good. You are good. (laughs) Let those words never be trite. 
Let them never be something we say mindlessly. You are good. Your creation is good. Your will is good. Your desire for us is good. It is perfect. Help us, God. Help us, God, as we live in the in-between spaces. Help us. Lord, we humbly submit ourselves to you. We lay ourselves down before you. We ask that you would have your way. We trust you, God. We believe you, God. Please help our unbelief. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.